Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. -on -One. Singularity One-on-One -on -One is a feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Socrates and as always I will be the man with the questions. Today I'm privileged to have Dr. Max Moore as my guest on the show. Dr. Max Moore has a very distinguished and very long resume, so perhaps the quickest way to introduce him is by using the words of two other great futurists and thinkers. Marvin Minsky, the father of artificial intelligence, said of Dr. Moore, We have a dreadful shortage of people who know so much, can both think so boldly and clearly, and can express themselves so accurately. Carl Sagan was another such one, and partly by paying the price of his, his life, managed to capture the public eye. But Sagan is gone and has not been replaced. I see Max as my candidate for that post. In addition, Ray Kurzweil said of Max Moore, Max Moore's ideas are very influential among other big thinkers, who in turn, who in turn are influenced leaders themselves. Max's writings represent well-grounded science futurism and reflect a sophisticated understanding of technology trends and how these trends are likely to develop during this coming century. So, hi Max and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. Thank you for having me. Should I refer to you as Socrates? Uh, you can call me name? Socrates or Nick. Uh, my uh, viewers and listeners are well aware of my alias. Okay. Um, the reason I use the alias Socrates is because I usually restrain my participation with the raising of the questions and I provide all the, the opportunity for my guests to, to supply the answers. Okay. <laughs> um, so let me start this interview by asking you perhaps to share a little bit more about yourself and your background but especially how and got how and and why you got interested in issues such as philosophy and ethics in general and transhumanism and the singularity in particular okay um well philosophy i started i suppose reading philosophy just before my teens maybe my very early teens um but largely actually through psychology and then getting into philosophy but my first real love intellectually i suppose was economics um, and I, was, I read huge amounts of economics, uh, devoured the textbooks before I even studied it at school. Uh, but after a few years, I started exploring the questions that underlay economics. Uh, if I had to write an essay, for instance, on the proper role of government in the economy, uh, then that raised not just economic questions, but questions of political philosophy. Uh, when you start thinking about political philosophy, you start thinking about ethics. What are the ethical foundations of uh, political systems? Why do I have any obligation to obey the law, or do I? Uh, which laws, depending on how they're promulgated, who, who sets them up? So that started me thinking about ethics, and then once you start thinking about ethics, you have to think about epistemology. How do we know things? How do we know things in the area of ethics? And so you, you know, start with this little small area, and it suddenly starts expanding to encompass the entire universe. And that's what philosophers do in their arrogance. They have something to say about everything. Uh, they talk about everybody else's discipline and its methodological foundations. Um, uh, they talk about the status of the different sciences and the social sciences and what people can know. So uh, you know, philosophers really uh, think they're experts on pretty much everything at some abstract level. So that's how I got into philosophy. But for me, uh, I think coming from the economics background and... My particular interests had always been a transhumanist in some form or another before the word was being used. To me, philosophy was about answering questions that I care about. It wasn't just an academic discipline where I want to get a PhD, so I have to study this, I have to study Kant, I have to study Hume, I have to study metalogic. Um, some of those things I didn't want to do, frankly. I never liked studying Kant. I'm not good at uh, mathematical logic. I managed to get through it. Uh, but for me, it was all about how do I answer the big, big issues in life? What's the right thing to do? What kind of life is worth living? Um, what's right and wrong, what's the best way to, to organize our society, uh, how can I know what's right and wrong. I actually remember, I still have a vivid memory, one of my earliest philosophical memories from when I was maybe 16, 15, 16, I had read, um, been reading some Hume, actually I think I was reading Bertrand Russell describing Hume's views, and I still distinctly remember walking along the street outside my home, really worrying, fretting, saying, how can I know that any of this is real? All I know is my sense impressions. I can't get beyond those. All of this could be an illusion, which, of course, today we still talk about. Now we call it the simulation argument, uh, a more modern version of that skeptical argument. Or the uh, brain so I took it very, very seriously. Yeah, the brain and the vet. Yeah. 
So I took those questions very seriously, and I'd always been driven into philosophy by answering things that I thought were important. And that's also why I ended up not becoming an academic, because the vast majority of philosophy that I've seen seems to me not to answer important questions. It seems to get uh, burrows into trivia, into very teeny technical issues that in the end don't really amount to very much. And uh, you can still do important philosophy, and there are people doing philosophy that's relevant to life. But uh, I suppose I felt that wasn't really the direction I wanted to go in. So uh, how did you make the, the sort of the move? Once you realized that philosophy is not the direction that you wanted to go in, how did you make the transition or the move into uh, transhumanism and some of your uh, later um, engagements, such as the founding of the Extropy Institute and, and your current position as the CEO of the Alcor Foundation? Well, it wasn't really um, the way you put it makes it sound like I dropped philosophy and moved on to transhumanism and other things, but these were actually all happening at the same time. Uh, again, really, if someone asks you, asked me, when did you start being a transhumanist, that's a very tough question to answer because, you know, the term wasn't being used until, uh, until really around 1990 or so when I published the essay on transhumanism. It had been used by Huxley and even Dante, arguably, if you go far back, but nobody had, was using those terms. Those had been forgotten until we more recently discovered them. And yet, uh, from the age of five, I was watching the Apollo moon launches. Uh, I was, as a, as a child, I was making uh, designs for rocket boots so I could fly to the moon. Uh, I was fascinated by science fiction where people live longer uh, or super intelligent. Um, I'd always been fascinated by those ideas in one form or another. So I think I was at least a proto-transhumanist, you know, pretty much always, as far as I can tell. Uh, so and when who I were your heroes when you were a child and you were inspired? Was it the astronauts who were the first people on the moon or...? I think astronauts were definitely uh, my, you know, some of my first heroes. And just like probably many, many boys in the late 60s, early 70s, if you ask them, what do you want to do? Well, I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> and I would have certainly said that back then. Um, because I, I think one thing is that getting off the planet, it represents a fundamental part of, of the extropian view of things, the extropic vision of overcoming limits. Uh, the planet's pretty big, but it doesn't seem so big these days. Uh, being able to leave the planet, get out of our gravity well, create new societies off-planet, uh, that seems like part of our future, and it's one way of breaking limits. And that really became part of the, the idea of you know, the extropy idea. And then combining that with the ideas of removing limits to human intelligence, to human creativity, uh, improving ourselves emotionally, those all came together to find, form really the, sort of the core of the principles of extropy. So, yeah, the Apollo people were my early heroes. And then um, once I got into life extension, which was in my early teens, um, I suppose I was for a while there a big fan of Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw because of their huge volume uh, life extension, a practical scientific approach, which, you know, I think is full of really bad advice now. But uh, <laughs> it was still a fascinating book and it was very detailed and impressive at that age. Um, probably another hero I would mention would be Douglas Hofstadter. Um, I read his book, Godel Escher Bach, when I was 16 or 17. That was a really challenging read, but that also introduced a lot of important ideas. Now, uh, you did mention um, your sort of seminal 1990 essay, Transhumanism Toward a Future Philosophy, a Futurist Philosophy. So perhaps it is best to uh, lay a little bit of the foundation for our discussion by going into the terms that we're going to be using and their meaning, because there's a lot of disagreement or misperception of the meaning of the term. So let's start with transhumanism. What, in your view, is transhumanism? Well, of course, you ask each transhumanist, you'll get a slightly different answer, sometimes a, a very different answer. Recently, the way I've liked to put it is to simplify it into two, two related ideas. And I think sometimes one aspect of this gets emphasized at the expense of the other. Transhumanism, you can think of as both transhumanism and as transhumanism. Now, to explain that, uh, transhumanism implies that it really emphasizes the idea that the human condition is not the final word, as Freeman Dyson put it. I think he said it's a marvelous beginning, but not the final word. Uh, the idea that human biological limits are not inviolate, they're not, uh, they're not sacrosanct, um, there's something to be respected in terms of making changes in a complex system. We have to be careful. But really, the whole process of history has been 
uh, increasing complexity and human beings learning to overcome their limits. And why on earth shouldn't that include our own internal limits, so biological, genetic, neurological limits? So the, the transhumanism part emphasizes that idea of overcoming uh, the limitations of humanity. On the other hand, I think it's also important to emphasize, again, from the philosophical background, this, I stress this, uh, the transhumanism, the idea that transhumanism didn't just appear out of nowhere, it has intellectual and cultural roots. And the way I see it is it's really the heir to the enlightenment, to enlightenment humanism. It has the same ideas of, uh, of progress, and there are different interpretations of that. Transhumanists don't, well, usually don't believe in inevitable progress. You have to work hard at it. Uh, it usually includes a kind of a secular notion that whether or not there is a higher being out there, and I, I personally see no reason to believe there is, but if, even if there is, it's really up to us to make the future happen. We can't just sit back and wait for a higher being to do it. Um, which is kind of interesting because now we have uh, not just divine beings, we have people suggesting that artificial intelligence will solve our problems unless it destroys us. Um, but the humanist, um, humanist ideas of, of progress, of inclusion of everybody to the extent we can, of trying to not just push ahead ourselves, but to bring up the people who may be behind to improve the conditions for everybody, just because that's a decent thing to do. And because actually, it's, I think really it's in our long-term self-interest that everybody is a part of the future. Uh, so a lot of those, those humanist ideals, including the idea that we should reject arbitrary distinctions that don't matter. And I think transhumanists are very good at that. We, we are very, uh, it's not even an issue if someone is gay, uh, if they're transgender, what race they are. I've never seen that as an issue at all in transhumanist circles. Uh, it just, it would be ludicrous to, you know, to be sexist or racist or biased against those people when you're talking about transforming the entire body and mind. That would be just crazy. Um, so I think the, emphasizing the humanist tradition of, of uh, you know, enlightenment ideals of progress, of goodwill, of creating our own future uh, and using reason and science coupled with goodwill, I think that's a crucial part of transhumanism too. So um, uh, how does transhuman, transhumanism relate to your work or the founding of the Extropy Institute and uh, potentially the Extropy principles that you, just, that you mentioned? Well, we started Extra Magazine, actually, first of all, uh, myself and uh, my friend Tom, uh, Tom Morrow, as he preferred to call himself, back in 1988, when we were students, graduate students at the University of Southern California. And the word transhumanism wasn't being used then. Transhuman was. FM2030 used the term transhuman, but he didn't uh, put it into that philosophical context and have transhumanism or any principles based on it. Uh, so in 1988, the central core of it uh, I have to give a hat tip to Timothy Leary, I suppose, because he was a bit of an inspiration in a, in, a, in a small way in that he had this formula, which I still rather like, the SMILE formula, uh, S-M-I-squared-L-E, spelling out SMILE, um, <laughs> two over the I. And that gets the essence of you know, some of those early ideas, space migration, intelligence increase, and life extension. So it doesn't hit all the points, but it, it gets at the core of them. So the concept of extropy, essentially, a term that Tom actually coined, not me, uh, is this idea of, of uh, increasing order, progress, complexity, uh, overcoming limits in every direction. So that included those things of space, intelligence, uh, extending our lifespans, but also a lot of other things. So we started that magazine um, and then founded the Extra Institute a few years later. And I think it was 1990 that, or 1989 that that essay came out, uh, talking about transhumanism and critiquing religion. Uh, and that uh, you know, became the Institute. It became a set of conferences, online forums, I think we still have one of the, it's one of the oldest surviving forums, the, we now call it Extra B Chat, but that's, uh, that's almost two decades old now, it's a very old email list. Mm -hmm. So the goal there really was to bring together these ideas, a lot of people were discussing space, space systems, some people were talking about life extension, some cryonics, um, but there weren't many people actually in one place talking about all these ideas together and how they interrelated, and that was my interest, and that uh, attracted a lot of other people. Uh, even before the internet existed, uh, or I should say before the web existed, um, brought them together to, because they were of like mind. I would get calls from people in uh, you know, far countries or in obscure parts of the United States who couldn't talk to anybody about these crazy ideas. And when they saw the magazine being reviewed in Wired magazine or some underground publication, they would call me up or, or write to me and they were very excited. I thought I was the only person who thought this way. And they're so relieved to actually find a community. Uh, that's absolutely fantastic. So. So perhaps now is the time to ask you, uh, how does your famous uh, pro-actionary principle fits within the general transhumanist philosophy? 
and how is it different from the widely popular uh, precautionary principle against uh, which it, it comes, philosophically speaking? Well, the proactionary principle um, is a response to the precautionary principle that I developed uh, with the input of quite a few people at an online summit. We call it the Vital Progress Summit, uh, some number of early in the early in the two thousands. And my motivation was that our culture, curiously, we're at the we're already at the peak of our culture. If you look at it historically, we're wealthier than ever, healthier than ever, longer lived than ever. Um, even in the United States, where people eat very badly and uh, pay too much for medical care, we just increased our life, extent, our life expectancy yesterday, it was said, to a new high, despite all those challenges. And so interestingly we, we enough, you live in the diabetes and stroke belt of the United States, by the way. Uh, really? I don't think Arizona is as bad as, uh, as some of the other I thought Texas areas is, in the south. No, I'm in, I'm in Arizona now, but yeah, Texas, Texas is pretty bad. Yeah. Um, Okay, now I've just... Uh, so, sorry, I interrupted <laughs> Where was I? Yes. We were talking about the precautionary principle. Oh, versus right, right. The so, right, so uh, I was seeing that there was a, despite being at the sort of the height of our progress, historically speaking, people seem to be obsessed with caution, with holding back and being afraid, which is, it's strange because if you go back to you know, Paleolithic days, people had to survive every day. They had to go out and hunt their food, uh, they could die at any time. They could fall over a rock and break their head. There's no medical care. So they had good reason to be cautious. Uh, today, we have hospitals and doctors and grocery stores and you know, food stockpiles. And so we're a lot more resilient. And yet our culture, bizarrely, has never been more cautious. We're afraid of everything these days. Uh, just about any energy source, for instance, uh, especially right now, topically nuclear power. Absolutely. Many people are expressing their fears about that without looking at... Uh, you know, the benefits, the costs and the benefits, they just see a problem and they magnify that and take it out of context and they don't, they don't think comparatively either. So what we have, especially in the sustainability movement and the green movement is essentially any useful energy technology you mentioned, they say, well, we can't have that because it's, it's going to cause problems. Um, we have people trying to stop genetic engineering and genetic research. We have lots of people opposed to life extension research. Um, we had the President's Council under Leon Cass, uh, backed up by people like Francis Fukuyama, all warning about the dangers of technological progress. Even Bill Joy, a technologist, saying that you know, we've got to stop. Bill McKibbing saying, enough, in the title of his book. So uh, people might say, well, technological progress is inevitable. We don't need to you know, be loud, noisy transhumanists. But in fact, you think historically, things can stop. They can reverse. They can go backwards. And uh, even if they don't stop, you can slow them down, and that might kill us because until we have real life extension breakthroughs, we have a limited amount of time. So I think it's important to keep up the rate of progress. And the precautionary principle essentially says, don't try any new technology. Don't allow it. It's too dangerous. If there's any chance that it could have bad effects, which of course it will, you have to learn by, by grappling with those, uh, then it says you should stop progress. The proactionary principle, by contrast, tries to take a more balanced view, uh, looking at the costs and the benefits uh, it urges us to use the most objective methods and the most creative and objective methods for thinking about these issues rather than being driven by fear. And there are a whole set of, of components to that, but that's basically the motivation. And that clearly fits in with transhumanism because transhumanist goals depend very much on technological progress, on some fundamental breakthroughs. Uh, and if we, if we slow down that progress, we stop it, uh, even in certain areas, then transhumanism is not going to be realized. So let me push you just a little bit more here on that issue about the proactionary principle. I mean, a critic might say, take the current crisis uh, with the potential or actual partial meltdown at the Japanese nuclear reactors. Uh, so one could say, for example, something like, well, if you were a little bit wiser and more cautious in applying the precautionary principle, that whole crisis could have been averted. So we... we probably shouldn't have built that nuclear reactor the way we built it. Maybe we shouldn't have built one there at all. I mean, there was a, a critic who said it was crazy uh, for Japan, which is one of the most seismically active countries in the world, to have 55 nuclear reactors. So all those critics obviously come from the precautionary uh, principle. So what would your response from the proactionary point of view be to that? 
Well, of course, it's always easy to criticize decisions in hindsight. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I think there is some point to uh, the criticism of the siting of those reactors. Uh, but one thing you have to remember is that this earthquake, which nobody seems to quite agree on the magnitude, an 8.9 or 9.0, that's a once in a thousand years size earthquake. So it, it's not really completely crazy that they didn't consider that, that size of an earthquake. They did actually plan for uh, quakes of you know, 8.3 or 8.4, uh, and it probably would have survived that. Um, so you could argue, well, they shouldn't have sighted those reactors there. They should have kept it away from the water. But they thought that was so unlikely. And then even if it does happen, what actually is the outcome? Uh, a lot of people, I think, are, are catastrophizing about this. It is a bad thing, but uh, and it hasn't finished playing out yet. But you have to also compare how many people are killed by other energy sources on a daily basis from emissions, uh, also from things like dam bursts. If you look up the numbers on number of people killed, especially in places like India and China from dams bursting, it's staggering. It's a lot more than even this incident at the worst is going to do. Uh, even one incident can kill tens of thousands of people, uh, over 100,000 people for the worst dam bursts. Uh, the mutagens and carcinogens spewed into the atmosphere by fossil fuels are more invisible because they're spread out. They're not focused in one place where you can put it on the news and take photos and go over it with helicopters. But it doesn't mean it's not killing people. So you have to take all that into account. I would say that if people had applied the proactionary principle, that incorporates the best parts of the precautionary principle. It doesn't say go ahead and do whatever you feel like doing. It says think very carefully and critically here. What options do you have? That would include sighting options, uh, what kind of power station, uh, whether to build it at all. Uh, it requires you to take all those considerations into account. So it doesn't dismiss caution. Um, and I would say that uh, people opposing nuclear power because of this doesn't make a lot of sense because you don't get that kind of, well, even in Japan, you don't get earthquakes that powerful, usually, very rarely. Uh, but in other parts of the world, it can be very stable. Here in Arizona, we don't have earthquakes. And that's one reason that we, the Alcor Foundation moved here. Um, and... Also, you have to take into account that these reactors are 40 years old. They were actually designed back in the 60s. And there are much more, there are even safer reactor designs now, which will shut down automatically. So I'm actually, you know, I'm not a big fan of this president in general, but I'm actually pleased that he apparently so far has not said we're going to shut down all our nuclear power stations. He seems to still be saying we should go ahead. And I think that still makes sense. So in, in your estimate, it does make sense to continue building more nuclear reactors? Yes, but I'd like to see the newer designs. I'd like to see uh, the safer designs, the ones that don't require that you do a lot of things to shut them down, that basically will shut themselves down unless you uh, have input. I'd like to see the uh, you know, thorium reactors worked on and various other designs. Um, uh, there are a number of designs which are a lot safer than the ones that we're talking about from 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. <laughs> well, uh, let me see. Um, one of your famous quotes <laughs> that I found here was uh, this one. We have achieved two of the three alchemists' dreams. We have transmitted, transmuted the elements and learned to fly. Immortality is next. So, would you like to elaborate on why do you think immortality is next? Well, I wrote that some time ago, and I have to say that today I don't use the term immortality. Um, but, Aurelia Gray is very careful to avoid that word. Yeah, I haven't used it in a number of years. It's, it's unfortunate because it's an easy, it's a single word, nice and brief, uh, and it's hard to write something you know, snappy like that if you use a longer term. Um, but the, so I wouldn't say immortality because that implies uh, a guarantee of, of never dying, never perishing ever, which I don't think anybody can guarantee. It also tends to have religious connotations. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I would say super longevity or uh, indefinitely extended lifespan like that. Um, yeah, the idea behind that was essentially the, the alchemists were proto-scientists. They were trying to do science before they had scientific method. So you've got to give them a lot of credit for, you know, they actually did make some progress too. Um, but using modern science, we have been able to achieve two of those goals. We can fly using you know, machines. Uh, we can transmute elements, very great expense and lots of energy, but it's, it is possible. So that leaves the, the final great alchemist goal. Um, of extending the human lifespan. And to me, that is uh, the most important goal for our civilization because what's happening right now is a holocaust. Essentially, millions of people are dying. Every year we're dying in huge numbers, one at a time. So again, we don't, don't think it's so bad because we don't see them uh, all being shot to death in one place. But it is just as bad. There are huge numbers of deaths going on. And we're just saying, oh, well, that's just natural. And to me, that's not acceptable. The fact that it's natural doesn't make it okay. Uh, we need to stop people from aging. We need to stop people from dying. 
Um, and those who die before we have adequate technology should be put into cryopreservation. The fact that this is not a standard practice to me is, is kind of stunning. And I think we will look back at this point from the future and we'll say, what were these people thinking? <laughs> they just, they did nothing. They threw people away when they legally died. Uh, they didn't do much to extend their lifespans. They weren't funding it, uh, except in a totally trivial amount. They were spending huge amounts of money on building weapons and on funding programs that don't do anything very useful. They weren't doing anything about fundamental aging problems. It was left up to essentially a few teeny private groups and individuals to try and fund this. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Aubrey de Grey, who is another um, anti-aging or super longevity enthusiast, um, often refers to, I think, about 100,000 people per day who are dying from old age and has very serious problems with the term natural death. Uh, he just <laughs> really cannot bear to stand hearing that term, I think. Um, so is that the motivation behind your work, sort of, achieving super longevity now that we've achieved the other two goals that the alchemists have set for themselves is that max moore's driving motivation that's certainly a big part of it yeah it's, it doesn't come on its own because if you talk about extending lifespan radically then it changes everything it's going to change uh, how generations relate to one another how our organizations are structured how politics works how people lead uh, how you have turnover of leaders it's going to change a lot of things and critics who say well you're going to change everything uh, well they're right it probably will change an awful lot of things uh, so you have to think about life extension also in terms of uh, the other changes that transhumanists want just living a lot longer, well, that, that's, that sounds pretty good to me, but I also want to know that I can continue to improve myself, that we can each uh, improve ourselves emotionally, intellectually, uh, and socially. So that all, that, all that really works together. So it's not a goal on its own. Um, uh, it really goes along with all the other transhumanist goals. But I think it's the one that requires the most emphasis right now because it's simply uh, it's, it's neglected and it's crucial. We can wait to build super artificial intelligence. We, we can wait to build nanotechnology, we can wait to build great spaceships if we live a lot longer. But the other way around isn't going to, well, arguably, some people think if we build great AI, it will solve the aging problem, and perhaps. But to me, you know, conquering aging, or at least postponing it, has got to be the number one priority. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this, by the way, this kind of attitude reminds me very much of a book that I just recently read by Kevin Kelly, where he says that human is a process, not an entity. Yes, yeah, I, I agree with that, essentially. Uh, yeah. So, Max, uh, perhaps the best uh, way to restart our interview would be to, to ask you, who is Max Moore? Um, uh, in other words, in your own words, would you say that you're a philosopher, uh, a transhumanist, a singularitarian, a futurist, an entrepreneur? Who is Max Moore? Oh boy, okay. Tough question. Uh, well, I chose the name more like 20 years ago or so to express what I think of as the essence of who I want to be, which is to be a process, not to be an end product, but to be continually changing and growing, hopefully. Uh, I adopted that name as a, as a reminder to keep doing that. When I was at the philosophy department back in the early 90s, one of the professors there asked me, why not call yourself Max Most? <laughs> and I said, and I said, well, that would be a horribly arrogant name. That would uh, sound like I'm the most I'm ever going to be, or the most that anybody can be. The whole point of the name was that uh, it's a reminder to keep improving. Was he so sarcastic? I don't like to... Sorry? Was he sarcastic in his question? No, not really. I don't know. Not particularly, I don't think. He was friendly. Um, but uh, so really there isn't anything I would identify myself with. There's no particular job. Philosopher certainly is not a term I like to use unadorned by... Uh, by any modifiers. That's why on my signature line you'll see strategic philosopher. Mm -hmm. Again, because as I was saying earlier on, I don't have a very high opinion of much of philosophy. I think a large part of it is, is not very practical or useful. It's just an academic discipline that has its own priorities. But uh, by calling myself a strategic philosopher, the idea is to combine that with economics and psychology and strategy uh, and be able to use philosophy as something more, uh, more useful and more focused. Um, I wouldn't really call myself an entrepreneur. I'm not, um, I'm not really skilled in that area. That's not really my personality type. Although I have had a tendency to start things up, uh, not so much businesses, but nonprofits and magazines and publications and groups. I've always done that, I think, since I was quite young. Um, Extrapy Magazine was one of, I think, at least six magazines I've started over the years. Um, 
so not so much entrepreneurial. Um, and these days, what I'm doing, of course, is a little bit different. Uh, running a, a reasonable sized nonprofit organization is quite different from sitting at home writing, uh, just writing things on my own. So when you ask me the question, you'll get a different answer every 10 years or so, I hope, I'd expect. So I try out different things. Yeah, that was also my sort of a segue <laughs> towards your uh, latest um, uh, position as the CEO of the Alcor Life Extension Foundation. So I wanted to also to ask you, how is that different or related to the work that you did before uh, going to Alcor? Uh, and what are the, the challenges that, that you're currently uh, facing there and, and the goals thereof? Well, getting this job at Alcor is interesting uh, quarter century turnaround, if you like, because 25 years ago, just before I left England, I, when I joined Alcor as, as a member, when I was uh, in my early 20s, um, I was then challenged to start something in England because there really wasn't any kind of cryonics organization in Europe other than a few people talking. And so that's what, what I did with a few friends. We got together and we founded Mizar Limited, Mizar being the companion star to Alcor, uh, and it was eventually renamed Alcor UK. So then you know, I was active in cryonics for a while, and then I kind of moved away from that a bit. But now coming back to the same organization, but this time actually running the organization. So it's an interesting kind of a circuitous route to coming back to the job. Um, it's a really, it's a very challenging job because obviously cryonics is not very popular. Uh, among those who've heard of it, the vast majority don't understand it. They don't really know what we do. Um, but more and more people are beginning to hear about it, partly because of the press, partly because it, pops up in movies, uh, increasingly so now, we're seeing people in various, various stages of chronic suspension, probably starting with the movie 2001, where people were put into some kind of suspended animated state. Uh, there are many, many challenges, uh, among which are well, simply running you know, a, a membership organization, being responsible for people's lives, uh, making sure everything goes smoothly, uh, getting research done to improve the cryopreservation methods we use, uh, trying to communicate the ideas to the public, uh, there are just a lot of different aspects to it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so if you were to to tell somebody who's never been exposed to the idea before, what is cryonics all about? And how is, that, how is your your nonprofit organization fit within that? Right. Um, well, cryonics to me is a natural outgrowth of uh, my interest in life extension. It's really one of the things you can do now, given that uh, you don't know how long you're going to live, you don't know when you're going to die. Just a few days ago, uh, an old friend of mine was, uh, was found to be dead, having died several days earlier, and he didn't have arrangements for cryopreservation, and that was very sad. Um, so I think this is kind of a core aspect of transhumanism, something you can do practically. Um, now, I think there's some part of your question I'm forgetting uh, so how how is the the, the work at, at the Alcor Foundation fit within the the cryonic science? Well, the Alcor Foundation uh, is is primary focus is really on uh, getting people into cryopreservation, getting them cryopreserved, and keeping them there indefinitely. That's our main mission. Uh, our main mission is not to do the research that will allow them to be revived in the future, that may become something we do, that may be something other organizations specialize in. But our main focus is very much on our patients, on protecting them and making sure that we improve our processes. Um, I think Alcor is perhaps distinguished from other cryonics organizations in our focus on the best technology that's available. Uh, there are other organizations that are less expensive than alcohol, but they generally offer lower quality cryopreservations. Um, and that's fine. I think there's room for everybody. It's an ecosystem. Um, I'm on very good terms with the leaders of these other organizations. Mm -hmm. that, that, is our, that is our niche, if you like. Um, we're just about, well, the two, two largest American organizations are fairly similar in size. We may be a teeny bit bigger, mm -hmm. uh, but that's really our focus is, is the best possible procedures, uh, the most advanced technology, and to keep improving that as well as we can. So... Um, I, as far as I know, there is uh, at least uh, two types of, of preservation. One is just partial, which preserves the head and the brain and so on, and one is full, the whole body preservation. Uh, perhaps uh, you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit uh, to, to our viewers about how that process works, uh, how they can join you, and, and what would be the, the cost associated with it. Yes, the, the two... The two main versions these days are 
whole body cryopreservation, uh, neuropreservation, where you preserve only the brain, although in practice you actually preserve the brain inside the skull because it's simply easy to do and it provides extra protection, mechanical protection. Uh, and I've actually always been signed up as a neuropreservation case. Uh, I have sufficient life insurance that I could do whole body, but I'm still a neuro case. And the rationale behind that is that the kind of damage that would be sustained to you in being in becoming legally dead, both what actually killed you, additional damage that's still done by the cryopreservation process, because it's not perfect, even though we continue to improve it. Uh, uh, and looking at the brain, we do a pretty good job of preserving it if conditions are good, but there is damage done, and the brain's a very complex organ. It seems to those of us who are, are neurocases that the kind of technology you'd need to repair that level of damage will probably find it relatively trivial by comparison to regrow a body, either to regenerate it from the cells you have, uh, to clone it from your DNA and then implant the brain. Um, that actually doesn't seem so far off. We're already growing whole organs and various tissues. Uh, we've made a lot of advances in cloning technology. So that doesn't seem really so far off, whereas repairing a brain with the current level of damage is still a pretty ambitious goal. Now, it may change. It may be that I'll change my mind and go whole body. Um, one big change that we've had, for instance, in cryonics in the last decade or so is increasing use of vitrification. Now, in vitrifying, what you do is introduce a much higher level of cryoprotectant solution uh, to wash out as much of the, of the body water as possible. And then as you cool it, instead of crystallizing and forming ice crystals, which are very bad news, uh, even though in the traditional protocols you minimize that as much as you could, still with vitrification uh, that's even even more minimized. And instead of crystallizing, it forms a very thick glass, if you like, it locks everything in place. And so uh, we do that. Originally it was just for neuro cases, now we do whole body vitrification. And it may be that uh, at some point the level of damage done in a good cryopreservation might be actually fairly small. And at that, at that point, um, I might, might want to switch to whole body because it might be that if I'm killed by some fairly repairable problem, I have an accident and, or I have cancer that's then cured, um, I might come back more quickly as a whole body. It's kind of hard to say. But it is more expensive to do a whole body. It's, uh, you know, we, we require $200,000 of funding for that as compared to 80000 for perpetual upkeep. Um, and there may be some advantages in going neuro at the moment uh, in that you can target the specific neural tissue. Different tissues in the body have different requirements for cryoprotection. But if the brain is the most important, then you want to optimize on that. So, so let me get this right. Uh, partial or neuro preservation starts at around 80000 and full body is starting at around two hundred thousand, because that right. that that doesn't seem, you know, ridiculously expensive to me. I mean, there I know of people who spend thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars for a for a graveyard lot. <laughs> Believe it or not, and mm -hmm. and <laughs> in my opinion, at least, the, the, there's no comparison <laughs> between the, right. the upside of one and the upside of the other, if I may say so. <laughs> yeah, and of course, any major medical procedure these days uh, costs a huge amount of money. You can spend that much in a hospital very quickly having any kind of procedure. Absolutely. So uh, we actually do urge our members to uh, make more funds available than the minimum. These are really minimum levels. Mm -hmm. Because with inflation over time, if you sign up with the current minimums in 30 years' time, that may not be adequate. Nice. And we may have more advanced, more advanced methods uh, that may cost more money to deploy. For instance, yeah. in May, at the suspended animation conference, there'll be some talk about liquid ventilation, uh, which may be a more expensive method that give you even higher quality preservation. So we really recommend that people fund it higher than the minimum so they can afford it if it goes up or if there are you know, better options available. And I should point out that for the, to those who aren't familiar with the funding, some of that money goes into actually doing the procedure, uh, the surgery, transport, stabilization. Mm -hmm. uh, but a large chunk of that money then goes into the patient care trust fund, uh, which is very separate from the rest of the organization's uh, operations income. And that money is, is invested very conservatively. And the interest from that is used, uh, if necessary, forever, for as long as necessary, to pay for the upkeep of the patients, to replace liquid nitrogen, uh, eventually to replace the dewars in which they're stored. So... Uh, now, we don't touch most of that money. That's reserved for the future. So, so, so the other question is the process that one who is interested in, in you know, uh, embracing cryonics uh, have to follow. So I would provide the link to your website. But say a person comes to your website, what's the process? What's the next step in that process then? Well, I mean, the first step, depending on the person, but the first step would be to really 
read about the subject, to really understand what's going on, to understand what we're doing and what we're not what we're not promising. Mm-hmm. We're not guaranteeing this is going to work. This is an experimental procedure. Uh, we don't know if it will ever work. Uh, we do have evidence that uh, when a cryopreservation is done well, the microstructure of the brain is pretty well preserved. We can look, you can look on the website at the electron micrograph studies. So it looks promising, but we don't know if it's going to work. So one of the first things we do before we accept a member is make sure they're educated, that they know what they're, you know, they have reasonable expectations, that they understand this is not a guarantee. Uh, so that's a very important thing to have informed consent. So I recommend anybody who only vaguely knows about the idea, even if they're enthusiastic, should first of all read all our disclaimers and uh, you know, uncertainties. And then if someone wants to actually become a member, it's, it's really a lot easier than it used to be. Uh, <clears throat> there are certain forms that have to be filled out. Uh, on our website, you can download the membership application. It's just a few pages, fill in the, the, the relevant details, and then our membership administrator generates the paperwork, uh, the, the chronic suspension contract, and a few other papers that you would then sign. We still get complaints that it's kind of a complex process, but I know when I signed up and you had to make multiple copies of everything and the stack of papers was you know, just ridiculous, now it's a fraction of that, so it is a lot better. But it takes a little, it takes generally a few weeks to work through that because we need to have things like, uh, apart from the person's own agreement and various choices they have to make about their funding arrangements and under what conditions they don't want to be cryopreserved, you know, if their brain is completely destroyed, do they still want to go ahead? If they aren't found for a week after legal death, do they still want to go ahead? Mm-hmm. But we also encourage them to get relatives to sign affidavits that say they won't interfere with the process uh-huh. because that's been a frequent problem in the past. I see, I see. Okay, uh, I want to move on to, to another practical issue of more personal character by asking you this question. Now, uh, a few months ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing your wife, Natasha Vitamore. And uh, it's, hard, it's impossible not to notice that both of you guys sort of radiate high levels of vitality and personal health. So I want to ask you, what's your secret? And I, I know that uh, you've mentioned uh, before that uh, our uh, Paleolithic ancestors. Um, so are you following? And I, I've read a few things, so I want to ask you about your diet and your other health regimen. Oh, you want to know my secret? Well, Absolutely. listeners can send $500 to the address below, and I'll be happy to let them know my secret. Uh, well, you take checks, I hope. <laughs> there isn't really a secret. Um, I've always been interested, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I've uh, been interested in life extension since my teens, and I've always tried to actually live by that, not just to, to think about it. Unfortunately, there are many people who talk about life extension and why it's important, but actually very quickly don't do anything much about it. They don't exercise, they eat poorly. Um, uh, maybe don't get enough sleep or they're stressed out. It is very hard to do, but I've, always, I've been on and off. I'm, I'm far from perfect. But Natasha and I are both pretty committed to taking care of our health through diet and exercise. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, um, this is a fairly recent thing for me, but very interested in the idea of the paleo uh, diet and lifestyle, uh, which is actually a major change in views for me because for about 30 years, I had bought completely into the idea that uh, you should eat lots of complex carbohydrates and fiber, whole grains, and cut out pretty much all the saturated fat. Uh, now I've you know, really changed my view about that, having read the paleo literature. I take the view basically that uh, our bodies still are pretty much in the same shape they were a few hundred thousand years ago. Uh, our paleolithic ancestors grew up eating certain kinds of food. They didn't eat grains. They didn't eat sugars. They ate uh, a lot of meat, um, some, some places even exclusively. Uh, and actually, not, that, not many fruits. And the fruits they did eat were a lot less sweet than the ones that we eat today. Mm-hmm. So the total sugar load was a lot lower. Uh, now, we've probably changed a little bit, and, and some populations more than others. I personally think I'm probably okay with dairy. Uh, strict paleo people, uh, especially those who go for what some of us call paleo reenactment, where they try to really be exactly like paleo people, uh, to me that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You have to actually com- compare that to the scientific evidence. All the paleo foods aren't necessarily good, and all the Neolithic foods aren't necessarily bad. Uh, plus, it also means giving up things like refrigerators and uh, grocery stores, which I don't believe in. Uh, so, um, I think on my view that the uh, the dairy is probably okay for me, but if you're an Asian or African ancestry, you might have more problems with dairy foods. So, there are various disagreements among the paleo, but the basic idea is to eat the kinds of foods that our paleolithic ancestors ate and that our bodies are still adapted to. And along with that, there are various prescriptions for exercise that uh, you know, paleo advocates tend to criticize those who go to the gym and run for an hour at a slow pace. It's really kind of a waste of time. You get a lot more effect by doing a combination of interval training where you're running pretty fast and then recover and then repeat 
and some all-out sprints every so often, just as, as you had to run away from predators or run to catch your food. Uh, those very high-intensity but shorter-duration workouts seem to have a much bigger stimulating effect on the body. So that's kind of the program I'm using these days, and uh, my level of supplementation has really gone down over the years. Uh, I mentioned Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw's book from a few decades ago, because they're advocates of massive supplementation, mm-hmm. and I used to have huge numbers of bottles of pills, but actually over the years that's gone down onto some fairly minimal, just overall multivitamin and uh, some uh, omega-3 supplements occasionally, and not really very much else. I think by eating the right kind of diet, you don't really need too many supplements. So, so on the on the exercise and the diet side, uh, you're embracing the sort of a more open-minded or open-ended paleolithic uh, diet with some dairy and so on, and you're you're uh, uh, a fan of interval t- training. And yes. on the supplementation side, you're doing multivitamins, but what about fiber? I mean, w- one of the the criticism towards the paleolithic diet is that you don't get enough fiber with it supposedly. Um, because, I mean, obviously, when you don't have the grains and the co- complex carbohydrates, you don't get the in- enough fiber. And I was even reading yesterday, um, there are some preliminary studies that there may be an increased risk of colon cancer and issues like that. So so do you supplement with fiber, for example, or how do you address no. that? No, I don't. Uh, it's interesting because before I was on this diet, I was always a very high fiber consumer. I would eat uh, double fiber wheat bread and uh, various other forms of fiber. And now I don't. And I don't, uh, from the research I've seen, the evidence I've seen, I don't think you need all that fiber. And again, we didn't, we didn't uh, really evolve to eat that much fiber. We had a lot of vegetables and a few roots and more fibrous fruits, but we didn't eat these whole grains. And in fact, I think the whole grain fibers are actually very problematic. They contain various anti-nutrients which bind to minerals and cause mineral deficiency. Uh, that's why in a lot of countries in the world, uh, you've got a strange combination of people who are uh, overweight and also mal- malnourished. And I don't think that's an accident. I think um, uh, the phytates and oxalates and various other anti-nutrients in grains, actually, even though you may think you're getting enough uh, vitamins and minerals according to what's going in, you're not actually absorbing them very well. And I think uh, getting a lot of fiber is actually a problem in that regard. Mm-hmm. I see. So what's next for Max Morden? I mean, you just recently started uh, as the CEO of, of the Alcor Life Extension Foundation, but uh, what's next for you? I Last time I talked to Natasha Vittemore, she mentioned very briefly uh, to me that uh, she's actually working on a book with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps you'd, you'd want to share with us a little on that and or any other projects that you have uh, ongoing. Well, uh, in terms of what's next, I've just started really at the Alcor Life Extension Foundation, so that's going to be next for quite a while. I like to stick with this job and uh, really work at it. But yes, of course, there are other things going on. Uh, the book Natasha's mentioning is The Transhumanist Reader. Uh, that's a book we've had underway for a little while, and we've been spending a number of months now going to publishers, uh, being rejected and coming back and being rejected and getting a couple of bites. And right now it's looking very promising. Uh, there's one major publisher who's been sending that to reviewers. and We're getting pretty good feedback there, so I think we may finally have a publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that doesn't work out, then we'll get it published one way or another. We have a roster of some 50-plus writers and essays for that volume. The idea is that there isn't really a central reference work you can go to that gives you a very clear idea, a clear and accurate idea of what transhumanism is about and its roots and its current state. And that really is the goal of that volume. Absolutely. I, I find myself that kind of a deficit, uh, both on transhumanism in general, but, but also on you, actually, even though I, I try and do my homework to prepare for our interviews. I, I found, for example, a, a surprising lack of video recordings with you, and, and hence my interview. Um, now... There is also the, my, my other book, which is kind of on hold right now while I'm doing this, but... Um, I'm hoping even with the, you know, the busyness of this job, I'll be able to finish my book on the proactionary principle. Mm-hmm. I did release one of the chapters on my website, and I'm thinking of putting out the, kind of the core chapter on the principle itself. Uh, but I don't want to put publishers off by releasing too much of it either. But I, I would like to finish that book too. I see. Well, I, I wish you good luck uh, with that. Um, now, I, I'd like to bring our interview to an end with... with um, a quote from you, another quote from you that, that's perhaps my favorite, and also with a request that uh, if there's one message that you would like our listeners and viewers to take away from our podcast interview today with you, 
uh, I'd like you to share that with, with us. So, but let me preface it with a quote. So here it is. No more guts, no more faith, no more timid holding back. Let us blast out of our old forms, our ignorance, our weakness, and our mortality. The future belongs to post-humanity. So uh, uh, I don't want to set, uh, set the, the tone of your last message here or your major message for our conversation, but perhaps you can elaborate a little bit on that and add or enhance it or even replace it with, with, a, with another that you, with, that's more favorite of yours. Well, uh, I do like that one, actually, looking back on my older writing like that, it's a very different style than I tend to write in today. It's a lot more declarative. It's very, uh, it's kind of in your face, uh, unapologetic. I've tended to become more diplomatic and cautious and uh, uh, make a lot of qualifications in anything I say now. Uh, but I sometimes miss that older style. I read some of my, my older stuff and think, oh, it's, it has a certain appeal to it. But it's also doesn't work in other contexts. Um, but yeah, that's, that's conveyed really pretty much the core of the transhumanist and extropic goal of challenging limits, questioning everything. And that really is what, what I would finish with is question everything, including your own beliefs. It's really tough to do. Uh, you know, Many of us in this community understand cognitive biases pretty well on an academic level. That doesn't mean that we're not prey to them. Uh, I think we all still fall prey to these cognitive biases and fool ourselves, even while thinking how rational we are. And that's a big problem. So I think if we're going to keep advancing, the most important thing is to be self-critical, not in a harsh sense. You've got to forgive yourself for making mistakes, but really just to keep questioning. You know, my transition to the paleo view is a very interesting one because it was a huge change in my, my views. I really hadn't looked into the issue in too long. And uh, you know, I found that I, I'm seriously mistaken, I think. So I think it's important to reevaluate your major ideas. And that's tough because you don't even think about them after a while. They just become a part of you and you don't even notice them. So it's important to challenge yourself and, and to listen to feedback from people who are substantially different in belief. So challenge everything. Yeah. Especially yourself. Especially yourself. Wow. Mm. That's fantastic. Well, on that, on that note, um, I'd like to, to thank Dr. Max Moore for spending his time with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.